Turn your Bibles to Jonah chapter 3. We're going to look today at verses 6 through 10. Before we get to the message, though, uh, I want to remind you, uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, 9, says that we are, if we are in Christ, we're a royal priesthood. And in that we have this responsibility and this ability even to intercede on behalf of our brothers and sisters in Christ. And so I want to begin uh, this time in the word that way. We need to be interceding for one another, praying for one another. I want to ask that we would do that, that you would pray uh, for those around you, that you would pray for me. Uh, There are people here today sitting in the seat that you are sitting in currently and in those around you who are struggling with anger, struggling with bitterness, struggling with impurity, with idolatry, struggling with strife, struggling with jealousy, envy, struggling with drunkenness, struggling with sexual immorality, struggling with depression, struggling with unbelief, struggling with homosexuality, struggling with pride, struggling with abuse, struggling with hatred, struggling with gossip, and struggling with slander. And so I want us to pray. I want you to pray. Pray for those people who are sitting around you, even if you don't know their name. Just pray for the people around you. Pray for your own heart. Pray that God, we are the temple of God. The temple of God. That's what 1 Corinthians chapter 3 tells us. Do you not know that you, plural, are God's temple? God's spirit dwells in you. And the promise of that is he will be with us and among us. And so knowing that he's promised to be with us, let's pray for each other. Pray that God will open hearts, move among us. We're going to look at verses 6 through 10 of Jonah chapter 3, and we're going to be talking about repentance today. And so pray, pray that God's spirit would move and that he will bring true repentance as we look to his word today. You, O Lord, are a God merciful and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And so we ask you to hear our prayers, these prayers that have just been lifted to you, prayers for our brothers and sisters in Christ and prayers for our own hearts. There are idols, there are idols that we are holding on to, clinging to in our hearts. 
Would you search us today, Lord? Would you reveal yourself to us today more? And would you bring true repentance that you would be glorified with your people? We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Jonah chapter 3, verses 6 through 10. If you'll stand as I read. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Go ahead and have a seat. We saw last week in verses 1 through 5, specifically 4 and 5, Jonah arrives in Nineveh. He goes into the city and he begins to call out against it. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And again and again, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And the people, it says in verse 5, believed God. They believed God. Jonah had come and spoken and it says they believed God. God had spoken to their hearts through Jonah, and rightly they respond to the Lord. They respond to this message of God. And it says, The people of Nineveh, in verse 5, believe God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. But what of the king? This king, this evil king who has ruled ruthlessly and who has gone into other cities and destroyed their people. This king with this Iron heart, heart of stone, merciless. How will he respond? How does this king who puts himself on this prideful throne and crushes his enemies, how will he respond to this message of Jonah? Jonah walking into his city, this city that he has built, this city that he reigns over, his people that he reigns over and calls out this call against it. How will this king respond? Well, we see here in verse 6, the word reached the king of Nineveh and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. The king of Nineveh trembles before the word of the Lord. It says he removed himself from his throne, steps down from his throne, postures himself among those who are fasting and pleading out to God in fear. Verses 7 and 8, he makes this proclamation. He issued a proclamation published through Nineveh by the decree of the king so that if they don't obey this, they will die. 
By the decree of the king, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink. Isn't that interesting? I mean, you, you would think that he would say, let not man or woman or son or daughter taste anything. Let's fast. Let's not eat or drink anything in hopes that we might be saved. But he says beyond that. Let not anything, everyone and everything must fast, even the animals. And what good will that do? What good will it do to have animals fasting? He may not be sure. He may just be doing the best he can. Just stop eating. And maybe if every creature is, is in a repentant state, then maybe the God of those creatures, the creator of those creatures will be merciful. Maybe he's just hoping. Maybe he does know what he's doing. Maybe in withholding food and drink from beasts, there'll be a constant, audible reminder to the people. Can you imagine? These animals are, are not fed and not given anything to drink. The noises, the pleadings. Maybe you've had a dog or a cat in your neighborhood that hasn't eaten they find a nice dwelling outside your window calling out for food. Not that that's happened to us recently. <laughs> Meowing all night long. Barking all night long. Imagine in this city, all of the animals, all of the cattle, the donkeys, the sheep, all of these animals starving and just making this noise, these cries. Imagine the sound in the city, the people crying out, the beasts crying out. Let not man, or let man and beast, he says, be covered with sackcloth. It was a physical sign of mourning, this rough material that they would wear as a picture of their mourning. Put on sackcloth, he says. Everyone. Everyone mourn, everyone fast. Let them call out mightily to God. Cry out to Him with, with all your strength. Don't cease in crying out to God. You think about the fear and the trembling that must be going on in the city. Just cry out to the Lord. Cry out to the Lord, the king says. Verse 8, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hand. Don't just call out. Don't just make noises. But stop doing the evil that you've been doing. Turn from your evil. Relent from the wickedness. Turn away from it. And then verse 9, who knows? Who knows? God may turn and relent. Turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Isn't that amazing? The king doesn't know that God will be merciful to him. He doesn't know what the king will do in response to the people's pleadings. All he knows is God has spoken. God has said, I know of your wickedness. Your evil has come up before me and I'm going to crush you. And the king has been humbled and he's fearing God. Calling out to God, having the people cry out to God. But he doesn't know what God will do. 
He's just doing what is right in the presence of God. Hoping. Being humble. And we get to verse 10. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. That is mercy and grace. Yet 40 days, Nineveh, yet 40 days, and you'll be overthrown. Yet 40 days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. Yet 40 days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. Nineveh panics. They're in a panic and a fear and they they stop eating and they put on sackcloth and they sit in ashes and they stop doing the evil that they've been doing and they cry out to the Lord and the Lord is merciful the Lord is gracious he relented of the disaster it says that he would said he would do to them he saves them and God is glorified in his mercy just as much as he would have been glorified in his judgment Why did the Lord relent? Why did he relent from what he said he would do? It's because he is a merciful God. He relented from his wrath towards them. Repentance. They repented and God relented. Repentance is necessary for the Ninevites here. It's not just necessary for Ninevites. It's necessary for everyone and when John the Baptist came on the scene and began to preach, it says in Matthew 3, 2, that he began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. When Jesus began his earthly ministry, it says in Matthew 14, 4, 17, he began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In Luke chapter 13, Jesus says two times in the passage, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. In Acts 17 verse 30, it says that he commands all people everywhere to repent, not just in Nineveh, but all people everywhere. Repentance is necessary. And I want to spend the rest of our time re-looking at this text And looking at what is repentance, the Ninevites give us a helpful picture of what true repentance is. And so I want to look at that together. Three evidences of true repentance that we see in Nineveh. Three evidences of true repentance that we see in Nineveh. The first is this. The first evidence of true repentance is believing God. They believed God. God. Jonah came and preached, and it says they believed God. Yet 40 days, and Nineveh will be overthrown, and they believed God. These arrogant and ruthless and evil people believed the God of the universe through Jonah. Repentance involves believing that God is right and that we are wrong. Believing that our sin is an offense to a holy God. We, we, we heard earlier as Lance read from Isaiah chapter 6 verse 3 where the angels are calling out night and day, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with His glory. Holy and set apart in all of His ways. 
One of the evidences of true repentance is when we, like the Ninevites, believe God, believe that God is holy and set apart, believe that He is right, He is righteous, and we are not. We are wrong. When Peter preached his sermon in Acts chapter 2, indicting the Jewish people for killing the Lord Jesus... At the end of the sermon, you remember that they come to him and they they ask him something. Brother, what are we to do? What shall we do? They knew that they were in the wrong. They knew they were wrong and they were afraid. They knew God was right and they were wrong. Peter's response was for them to repent. Their acknowledgement of God being right and them being wrong was the first step, a first evidence of Repentance. So the first evidence of repentance is that it's it's believing. Second is denying yourself. Second evidence of true repentance is denying yourself. We see that here in Nineveh. You look at the people, how they respond in verse five to their belief or in their belief. There's evidence to them believing. It's not just that it says they believed God. There's an evidence to their belief. They, they, they begin to fast and put on sackcloth, verse 5 says, from the greatest of them to the least of them. There's evidence to their belief. Believing that God is right and they are wrong. They begin to fast and realizing, denying themselves, realizing that at this point, what, what good is food going to do for them? What good is it going to do to eat? God's going to crush us. So let's deny ourselves. Let's, let's not put ourselves first anymore. Let's deny ourselves. Let's humble ourselves and seek God. Not just that, but you look at the king. The king just, just gives us such a wonderful picture of, of denying ourselves before God. It says in verse 6, the word reached the king of Nineveh. And first thing he does is he arose from his throne. King gets up off of his throne. That's a picture of self-denial. It's what all of us need to do. All of us have these little thrones that we've set up in our hearts and we've placed ourself in them. Self-denial is getting up off of that throne that we've placed in our minds and our hearts thinking that we're something compared to God and realizing we're nothing and denying ourselves, humbling ourselves before God. Stepping down. From the throne we've placed ourselves on, being humble before God. That throne for the king meant nothing if God was going to destroy both the throne and him in it. It says he arose from his throne. Not just that, it says he removed his robe. No place for competing royalty in the presence of God. And third, we see that. He uses his position to point other people towards God, not towards himself. He makes this proclamation for everyone to follow in his path. Humble yourself before God. Call out to God. Pointing others to God, not to himself. The king steps down and removes his royal robe in order to be one with his people in their misery. Setting an example for the people. Setting an example for us. By acknowledging his own need to repent. We all need to repent. 
No matter what our position is, no matter who we think we are, no matter what our power is on this earth, we need to repent before God. Deny yourself and repent. The people we see were calling out mightily to God a picture of self-denial. Not hoping in themselves. They know what, what they can get themselves. They know what place they've gotten themselves. And now they're in a place that knowing we can't do anything for ourselves. We're calling out to God. That's self-denial. Not presuming on God. Just calling. Just calling out to Him. Hoping for mercy. You fast forward to the time of Jesus. And Jesus talks about this response of the people to the preaching of Jonah and he uses that to shame and condemn the hearers in his day. Here's who didn't believe in him. Here's who denied him. He says to them in Matthew chapter 12, something greater than Jonah is here. What's he saying to them? Learn from the people that Jonah preached to. That's what he's saying to the people in his time. That's what he's saying to us. We ought to learn. We must learn from Jesus' words. And we must learn from the response of the Ninevites. Of their belief and their self-denial. If the people of Nineveh trembled and repented at the preaching of Jonah, how much more should we tremble and repent at the preaching of Jesus? Jesus says, deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. And so the second evidence is denying yourself. Third evidence of true repentance is turning from your evil. That's what we see in Nineveh. In verse 8, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. It wasn't just proclaimed by the king. It was done because verse 10 tells us when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way. God relented, turning from the evil. It's what repentance is, literally. It's a turning around. It's a turning of the direction of our life and the affections of our heart. Not just saying sorry about that. We, we tend to do that, don't we? If we offend someone and we, we, we can sense that they feel offended or they feel wronged, how do we respond? Sorry about that. We don't mean it. We're not repentant when we say that. We're just sorry about that. It's not just kids that do it, right? Adults, you offend your wife or your husband, sorry. Coworker, sorry. That's not repentance. That's not, that's not realizing the evil that we have done, the wickedness that we've done, that, we, that God is right and we're wrong and we should turn from the evil and go towards God. That's what true repentance is. It's a turning of our heart, a turning of the direction of our life, the affections of our heart. In fact, in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul writing to the Corinthians in uh, starting with verse 8, he says, For even if I made you grieve with my letter, referring to 1 Corinthians, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, 
so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. What Paul's saying is there's two kinds of grief. There's a kind of grief that I feel when I get caught. And I'm grieving. I'm sorry that the person who caught me knows that I do that. I wish they didn't know that. And so I want to I clean that up as best as I can. And I want, I, want, I want them to think that I'm more holy than I really am. I'm grieved that that person thinks less of me. That I've been de-elevated in their mind. That's worldly grief. That's not, that's not godly sorrow. Godly sorrow, Paul's saying, is when we realize that our offense is against a holy God. And we're not sorry that we don't look good in people's eyes. We're sorry that we've offended God. We're sorry that we've sinned against his holiness. We're sorry. We're grieved in our hearts because we know God is right and we are wrong. That's godly sorrow. That's godly grief. And godly grief, Paul says, leads us to repentance when we believe that God is right and we're wrong and we're willing to deny ourselves, repent from our sin. It's turning from our evil. As David says in Psalm 51, verse 4, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Had David sinned against people? Yeah. Had he sinned against Bathsheba? Yes. Had he sinned against Uriah? Yes. But ultimately, his sin was against God. His sin was an offense against the holiness of God. Acts 3, verses 19 and 20 say, Repent, therefore, and turn back. That your sins may be blotted out. That times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Repentance is believing God. Believing who He is and His holiness. And believing that He's right and we're wrong. It's it's denying ourselves and turning from our evil to God. That's what we see in Nineveh. And what's the result of that? What's the result of true repentance? The result of true repentance is what we see in verse 10. It's mercy and grace. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. That's mercy and grace. And you may think as you read that, is that a contradiction I mean, God said he was going to do something, and he didn't do it. He said, 40 days, I'm going to destroy Nineveh, and he didn't do it. Is that a contradiction? Because we know the Bible says that God can't lie, and he never changes. So is that a contradiction here that he relents from this disaster that he's going to do to Nineveh? And the answer is no. It's not a contradiction, and mainly for two reasons. The first is this. The city that God promised to destroy, the wicked city of Nineveh, is no longer. It's gone. 
doesn't exist anymore. In fact, as, as one author put it, it, is, it was wicked, violent, unrighteous, atheistical, proud, and luxurious Nineveh, which God had threatened to destroy. A city sitting in sackcloth and ashes, humbled in the depths of self-abasement and appealing as lowly, pleading to his sympathy. A Nineveh like that, that Nineveh he had never threatened. That Nineveh he visited not with ruin. He had never said that he would. The Nineveh that God threatened to destroy passed away. It became totally another city. And secondly, it's not a contradiction because God did not relent from his wrath altogether. His wrath was postponed. It was placed on Christ. His wrath didn't just stop. And it doesn't stop today. It's the same for those of us who repent today. It's not God's wrath just disappearing because of what we've done. It's transferred to Jesus Christ. Jesus stepped forward as a substitute, as the wrath bearer for the sins of those who would believe and repent. There's hope and there's mercy in Jesus. Just like there's hope for Nineveh in Christ, there's hope for us in Christ. We talked about briefly Acts chapter 2, verses 37 through 41, where Peter's preaching and, and, and indicting them for killing the Son of God. What does that tell us when they come to him and say, what must we do? And his response is, repent and be baptized, every one of you, and you'll be forgiven for your sins. What hope is that for us? It's it's hope in that in Christ, even if you are a murderer of the Son of God, there is forgiveness offered to you in Jesus. There's mercy. But what is it that keeps us from true repentance? What is it that keeps us from believing God and denying ourselves and turning from our evil and running to God? Because, because we're, we're just as prone with God to try the whole I'm sorry thing, right? We sin and we feel guilty and we, we try the same thing with the Lord. I'm sorry. I know I shouldn't have done that. I'm sorry. But are we truly repentant? Do we see and believe, God, you are holy and you're set apart in all of your ways. And this is an offense to your holiness, It's an abomination to your presence. I believe that you are right and I'm wrong and I'm I'm denying myself and I am turning away from this wickedness and I'm running to you in Christ. That's true repentance. Are Are we repentant people and what's keeping us from true repentance? Maybe you would say, well, I've tried. I've tried to repent. I've tried to turn from the sin and it never works. And I would encourage you, I would ask you, are you trying in your own strength or are you trying in the strength of the Lord? He will help you. We come to Him believing and denying ourselves, not believing in ourselves, but believing in Him, just as, as Lance was referring to and praying through Ephesians 1, that we would know what is the hope 
What is the hope for us? Ephesians 1.9, that we would know what is the power at work on our behalf, the same power that raised Christ from the dead. That is sin-conquering power. That's power that enables us to truly repent and run to Jesus and receive mercy. And you may say, well, isn't it a work of the Spirit and not of the flesh? Absolutely, it is completely a work of the Spirit. And so repent. Repent. The truth that it's a work of the Spirit gives us hope in our repenting. If God is moving in you, working in your heart, then repent, run from the sin. That truth that it's a work of the Spirit is what gives us hope that repentance can happen. If it was on me, if it was in my flesh and my abilities to repent, there'd be no hope at all. But it is a work of the Spirit. So repent and run, run to Jesus. See, repentance is not just for those who are coming to Christ to be saved initially. Repentance is for all of us. We ought to live lives of repentance. You look at the book of Ephesians in chapter 4 and 5 where, where Paul's encouraging the people of Ephesus, put off the old and put on the new. Walk in newness of life. Those things that are old, flee from those. In Colossians 3, flee from those things. Turn away from those things and run to God. That's repentance is what we see in, in, in 2 Corinthians 7 with those believers, the people in the church who are walking with the Lord already, but struggling as we saw as we went through the book of 1 Corinthians. And as he writes to them in 2 Corinthians, what have they done? As believers, repented, turning from their sin. We must, we must. And I would encourage you to examine your heart. Have you truly repented? God promised judgment and wrath for sinners. And Jesus stepped forward as a substitute, taking the judgment and wrath upon himself for everyone who believes, everyone who denies himself and comes to him. Scriptures tell us that a broken and contrite heart, like we see with the people of Nineveh, a broken and contrite heart he will not despise. He will not despise. The Lord says in Isaiah 45, verse 22, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Something greater than Jonah has come. Jesus. Jonah walked into Nineveh and he preached this message, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. He couldn't offer them mercy Jonah couldn't give them mercy. Jonah could, he wasn't able to, to show them mercy and give them mercy. We well, see in the next chapter, he didn't want them to have mercy. He wasn't able to do that. But something greater than Jonah has come, Jesus. And through Jesus, God showed Nineveh mercy. And through Jesus, God shows us mercy. And so I'd encourage you as we close this and get ready to sing. Have you repented? Are you living a life of repentance? Are you living just a life of sorries? Are you truly before God, coming before God and letting Him examine your heart and those idols, and they're there. We all have these idols in our hearts, things we cling to, things we we set our affections on other than God, more than God at times. 
Those are idols when we do that. Are we truly repenting of those idols? Believing, God, you're right and I'm wrong. You're holy and I'm not. And willingly, by his grace, denying ourselves and running to him for mercy, (coughs) forgiveness. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness and your grace. Lord, thank you for the mercy that you give that we don't deserve. Your mercies are new every morning. And we're desperate for it. We're desperate for your mercy every morning. We're desperate for your mercy every afternoon. We're desperate for your mercy every evening. We are desperate for your mercy. You are holy and set apart. And in your holiness, in your righteousness, in your mercy, in your grace, and in your love, you put forth your Son, Jesus Christ, as a propitiation for our sins, a substitute satisfaction for your wrath for our sins so that if anyone comes to you believing their sins are placed on him and his righteousness credited to them that is mercy that we just can't even comprehend or understand we are deserving Just as deserving as wicked Nineveh, we are deserving of your wrath, and yet you are a merciful God. How could we not? How could we not believe you? How could we not deny ourselves? And how could we not run to you, fleeing the idols that are hopeless, that show us no mercy? Lord, I pray, I pray that you would search our hearts right now. That you would reveal idols and that you would reveal and bring about godly grief. We need to see you, Lord. We need to see you. Because we know when we see you, Lord, we're going to respond rightly. Like those in Nineveh, like Isaiah, when he saw you, Lord, and grieved his sin. Like Peter on the boat when he saw your glory. And grieved his own sinfulness. And we thank you that as we grieve, there is mercy and there is hope, there's help, and there's comfort in Jesus. There's forgiveness. So we praise you and we thank you for that. And we ask you, Lord, to search us. Because we do want to walk in newness of life. We do want to repent of the things that dishonor you because you alone are worthy. So we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.